0: Welcome to Kesed. If, you are, uh, if you're new, if you're a guest, thanks for, thanks for coming and checking us out. My name is Danny. I'm going to be sharing with you today. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you picked a great Sunday to, to come visit. Uh, we're launching a brand new series that will last from now through the end of the year called Iconic. Uh, it's a progressive series. So uh, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, you'll see the stage kind of change and transform until uh, the Christmas build, which you saw during the announcements. We'd love for you guys to come and help out. Um, the Christmas build is a really fun evening, and it's a great way to, to get people that, uh, that love Christmas to come and visit church, because it's one of the most visited days of the year other than Easter. So uh, we're excited about the series. I'm going to jump in today and kind of explain what it's about. I, I really believe in my heart that it's going uh, to be transformational, and and overall that, that God's going to do something really special with it. Um, I've been excited about it for a while, so... Uh, before we start, though, I'm going to pray. Uh, there was just a really sweet spirit in the room during worship. And um, I feel like there's, there's people who showed up today that are looking for something. And uh, I am wholly inadequate to, to meet that need. But I know that God is not. And uh, I just want to make sure that, that we start off with all that focus on him and on whatever he wants to do in the room today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for the way that you orchestrate for the way that you ordain, for the way that you direct, and for the way that, that you bring people together, whether they're here in the room or they're watching online or even watching later a recording, that, uh, that, God, you would meet them where they are in the midst of their story, in the midst of their questions and their curiosity and their busyness or, or even their struggle. I am, I'm just so grateful that, that you are so present and so willing to meet us when we pause and, uh, and respond to you. And so we just wanna start off this time together doing that, responding to you, uh, proclaiming you, talking about you, making you the focus. We lift the rest of this time up in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if there was one through line inside the Iconic series, just kind of one overarching teaching arc, it would be uh, this idea about redemption, that, that there is something within the Bible that is very unique to Christianity And that is the story of redemption. And not just redemption of us, which I'll talk about, but redemption of culture, redemption of of, of, uh, experiences, redemption of the way in which we live our lives. For generations, the church has redeemed the things of the world instead of alienating them. Uh, It hasn't leaned away when it didn't understand something. It actually leaned in, teaching that much of culture can be redeemed for worship. So to start, before I kind of unpack that. Let's just give a really basic kind of teaching about the the way redemption works in the Bible and the way that we are to understand it still today. Uh, Probably the most famous verse is Paul when he writes to the church in Ephesus. This is what he says, "'In him,' him being Jesus, "'we have redemption through his blood, "'the blood that was shed on the cross, "'the forgiveness of our trespasses "'according to the riches of his grace, "'which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight.'" So Paul identifies redemption right away as the forgiveness of our sins according to God's rich grace given to us, meaning it's not a posture we take, it's not something we go and purchase, it's not the act of becoming self-disciplined enough or pious enough or generous enough to deserve redemption. Nobody deserves the redemptive love of God and that's what makes it so incredibly powerful. Uh, The term redemption actually translates from the Greek the act of fully setting free. So that alludes to this idea that people exist in some sort of bondage. As we keep reading in Ephesians, we learn that that's actually true, and this is why we need redemption. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3 describes every person who's ever existed and therefore their need for redemption. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. And then it describes what that looks like. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This speaks to the reality that all of us, every single person here right now uh, within us has that incredibly selfish, uh, incredibly uh, self-focused sort of two-year-old that many of us have had the privilege of raising, where it's about my time, my food, my toys, and my desires. And I am the center of everyone else's world, or at least I want to be. This kind of living doesn't work in the kingdom of God because God is the center of the world since He's the one that created the world and from everything came Him. And humanity likes to step in as often as they can and try to take that crown themselves. But the problem is, we're no good at it. And so we destroy things. We destroy other people. We destroy systems. We destroy nature. We destroy each other. And ultimately, we really destroy ourselves. And so we need to be redeemed. Before Christ, although we were physically alive, we were in bondage to that destructive path. We walked enslaved to the world and to our own flesh. And this incurs a debt. This incurs a a space, is, is a great way to understand it, between me and the God who is flawless, who loves me in a flawless way. And I want to love him, but the reality is I just can't love him as much as I love myself. This is the the baseline really of every marriage or even every parent is you want to love your spouse more than you love yourself. But every once in a while, you just get away and you choose yourself. At least I do. Rarely, but it's happened before. (laughs) It's happened before. This is just what it means to be human. And so Christ shows up and speaks into that. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, Jesus. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the gospel message. This is the baseline measurement that you should be judging. Every church community you sit in, every teacher who speaks, there's all sorts of style. There's all sorts of of theology. There's a lot of open-handed stuff that people like to die on. But at the end of the day, the close-handed greatness of the good news is that Jesus is the only way. There simply is not another and that he came to redeem and love through his death Jesus himself says this about himself. Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this this purpose. And after his death, John says, at the end of his book where he writes all about Jesus and the way he was reconciling the world to himself, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have redemption. You may have a debt that's washed away and a soul that is filled from top to bottom with his forgiveness and grace. This is just old school preaching right here, by the way. This is just old, old school, like straight up. Some of you are like, why are we doing this? And it's because Kesed is a unique space. First off, Kesed knows it's messy. We know we have multiple generations in this church, which is why people either complain about the bass too loud or there's too many babies in the audience. Those are the two biggest complaints we get, right? The old people are like, turn the base down. And the young people are like, why don't they take him to children's, right? It's just, it just it, it's fine. We, and we're good with both of it because we want to be a church that is multi-generational. But what that makes us is messy, We are messy, messy people. And that means that people from outside churchdom and church culture feel welcomed here because most people in the world know they're messy. It seems to be Christians who spend a lot of time kind of refining their look, the way they sort of, you know, walk in and present. Those are the people that that need to maintain the clarity of cleanness. But the world, the world... It doesn't, it doesn't operate that way. It knows, man, I'm messy, you're messy, we're all messy. I'm also selfish and want to be the center of the world. And so I'm going to compete against you and so forth. What that also means is that a room like this is full of people from all kinds of spectrum. And I can promise you there are people who've never heard the simple gospel message that was just preached right now. And that's why we keep preaching it. And that should be measured. And it's important. And just about every church preaches it pretty well. Because we all agree that Jesus is the way, the ones that focus and believe in this book and his word. But where it gets kind of sketchy is when we preach the gospel in a way another church thinks the gospel shouldn't be preached. That's when it actually gets complicated. It's when we start telling people, no, 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 I, I know what you're saying, the good news, but you can't say the good news like that. This is how the good news is presented. No, no, not like that. This is how the good news is presented. And that's what I want to talk about today because that's what this series is going to speak into. The controversy around the right way to share the gospel has been an ongoing conversation from almost the beginning of when the gospel was released into the world. I believe this is why we have so many different examples in scripture of the gospel being presented. For example, you have uh, the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch who is on his way back home after visiting uh, Jerusalem to worship. And all of a sudden the Lord comes to Philip and says, hey, run up alongside his chariot. He has some questions about the scripture he's studying. And so Philip just starts running up alongside his chariot. And he's like, hey, wanna do a Bible study? <laughs> Anybody ever tried that? I've never heard of anybody trying that, but it worked. The eunuch's like, yeah, jump on in. So he gets in. He's like, what's this passage mean? He's like, oh, it's about Jesus. And it's about the forgiveness of sins. And it's about redemption. And the eunuch's like, this is bringing so much clarity of mind to me. And then he looks over and he sees water. And he says, hey, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And so Philip says, let's do it. So they get out of the chariot. They go down into the water. He puts him under the water and it says that as the unit comes up out of the water, Philip is whisked away. He's just whisked away. This is a beautiful example of sharing the gospel one-on-one. And yet I can tell you right now, I have baptized a lot of people and never once have I whisked. (laughs) I'm whiskless, not one time. Now I, now it seems funny, right? Until you realize some people actually believe this to be how the gospel is supposed to be shared. And I was told once while in a local grocery store, there was an employee that was working there he came up to me. He knew I was, he's like, you're the pastor of Kessel. I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I don't know about your church. And I thought, well, here we go. All right. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, uh, you, you, you don't preach teleportation. I said, what? And then I was like, "No, I don't. I've been trying to get it through my elders, but they just won't listen." <laughs> and he he goes, "Yeah." He goes, "I mean, I just teleported like yesterday," and I go, "You did?" And he's like, "Yeah, I just teleported yesterday because you know Philip. He he teleported. He like he like went through a portal and into another land. And that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how the gospel's supposed to be presented." So I said, "Well, let's teleport out of here right now. I'm ready." And he was like, no, no, now's not the time. I got shelves to stock. And I was like, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and listen, I'm not demeaning if you're a teleporter or a whisker. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I don't think you get to say it's the only way is all I'm saying. Uh, how about the, the passage uh, where Paul speaks to the great crowd? You go from Philip and the eunuch, which is a one-on-one sharing of the gospel, to the passage at Pentecost where Paul or, uh, Peter shares, sorry, and 3,000 people come to, to know God, Jesus, in one day. I've had people say that that's how the movement of God works. It's, it's, it's huge, it's massive, it's, it's undeniable. And I'm here to tell you because I've told those people, and I'll say it again, that's a broken Bible. God celebrates in heaven the salvation of a 13-year-old as much as he celebrates the salvation of 3,000 souls. It has nothing to do with the numbers and it never will. But this is what people believe because they pick one thing that fits maybe how they were converted, which is important, but it becomes the way and the thing. And yet throughout scripture, it seems the good news doesn't have an only way or an only thing My favorite example of the good news being preached in an unorthodox way happened through Paul, a once religious zealot of a man who persecuted the church only to be redeemed by a beautiful collision with Jesus himself. Paul had a passion for sharing the gospel, especially with deeply pious people like he used to be. This is a very human thing, by the way. If you want to to share the gospel, if you've never shared the gospel with anybody and you're wondering where to start, start with people who used to be like you. If you came to Christ in a business meeting, try it. If you came to Christ in a church service, try it. If you came to Christ at a retreat, try it. You'll know those people, you'll know that space. I came to Christ in a one-on-one with the pastor of our local church and my father in the basement of a house we were renting. So one-on-ones for me are natural and organic, they make sense, Pastor Chris Potter, who preaches at Columbia, came to Christ in a church service. And at first you might be like, all right, so he loves church sermons. No, he loves the power of the the unexplainable in a church service because he didn't come to Christ during the message. He came to Christ after worship, before the message, during announcements. It's like the lady was like, and afterwards we're gonna have a potluck. And Chris was like, Jesus is real. I just know it. (laughs) That's how he came to Christ. Uh, Pastor Joe, who's leading our missions trip, came to Christ on a mission, on a missions trip. That's where Jesus met him. And so he has no problem taking people who aren't believers on a mission trip. Whereas others might be like, well, do you know Jesus? Because we're gonna go down and do the work of Jesus. And Joe is like, no, no, no. The mission trip is the work of Jesus. How you came to Christ is maybe how you should start sharing Christ. And this is exactly what happens with Paul. See, there's a a hill uh, in Athens, Greece called Mars Hill. It was a meeting place for the Areopagus court, the highest court in Greece for civil, criminal, and religious matters. Even under Roman rule, which these people were at this time, in the time of the New Testament, Mars Hill or Areopagus remained an important meeting place where philosophy, religion, and laws were discussed. It was the place where people went who were spiritually minded, who wanted to talk about creation and where they came from and how to worship and where to dedicate their lives. This was the place of places to do that in this foreign culture. And so Paul, on his second missionary journey there, he ends up debating with some of the the philosophers of the time. And he does it so well that they're like, we'd like to, to, to offer you an invitation to come and share with us up on the hill. And Paul, instead of saying, well, that's an unsacred place. That's a place where they sacrifice to other gods. That's a, no, no, no. I am a clean apostolic man. I could never find myself in the house of, of, of paganism. He's like, what time? So they set a time and he shows up. And I want you to imagine it. Here's all the greatest thinkers of this time people who have built entire lifestyles out of things that are countercultural to the good news that Paul knows to be true. And on this hill are huge monuments where sacrifices are made to other gods. And so they finally get to Paul's turn, and someone says, You know, we're here to talk about the things of the universe. And so this man, Paul, came preaching a message last time he was in town. He's back. We want to hear from him. And so Paul stands up, and this is what he shares in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, listen carefully, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He tiptoes right into where they are and what their heart's desire is. He then says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He finds an altar. They're so spiritually minded that they have an altar to any God they may have missed. And Paul goes, I'm here to talk about him. He takes their idol worship and turns it into a sermon about Jesus. This is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. We live and move and have our being. Listen to this next line. As even some of your own poets, your own great thinkers, your own theologians have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He preaches their own scripture. And he adds, being then God's offspring, since you believe that, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul starts his message by addressing the false beliefs of those gathered there that day and then use those beliefs as a way of presenting the gospel message to them. Paul's sermon is a classic example of a gospel presentation that begins where the listeners are and then presents the gospel message in a logical and biblical fashion. And Christians have been following this example ever since, or at least we're supposed to. A lot of times I don't come across uh, Christians like that. I come across Christians that spend most of their time drawing lines about what doesn't fit instead of trying to figure out how the things that don't fit can be redeemed in order to explain to a person who already knows they don't fit why a God they've never met wants to be in relationship with them. I was thinking about this uh, as I was preparing this that, uh, that I struggle more with... with uh, I'm going to say church people instead of Christians, churchy people, um, than I do with pagan people. I'm also going to say that churchy people have tried to take me out of ministry the last 24 years far more than pagan people have. Because there's just a lot of stuff that doesn't fit about me, like tattoos when I first started. I got an email from a guy one time. He goes, you're, you I think I made a joke that my body's 24% or something covered in tattoos. And he sent me an email that said, well, then you're 24% hated by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I know I was like, and then I teleported over to his house and I said, you and I are gonna talk, sir. You and I are gonna talk. He's not one of my elders. So that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, sorry, I got, off, I got off track there for a second. Let's bring it back to Jesus, everybody. Bring it back to Jesus. Okay, with understanding with understanding, that, that, that's just, that Paul's way is the way, that, that there's lots of ways in order to preach the gospel, here's what I wanna do. I want us to understand and look at the longtime Christian tradition of using iconography to better understand and teach people about who God is and how he works. So let me explain first what is an icon. The word icon is used all throughout the Bible, and it's used in two different ways. The Greek word is often used for symbol or for idol. Those are the two ways that the word is used. So let's look at the difference between the two. The most famous use of the word icon as related to an idol would be in Deuteronomy 5 as one of the Ten Commandments. Moses is speaking on behalf of what God has written, and he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, That's the word icon or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. This passage is referring to icons being made as idols proclaiming that if you try to find an icon to replace God it's idolatry every single time. Now I wanna make sure and sit on this just for a second, because for some you're thinking of idol like Harrison Ford going after a little gold statue, you know, hidden in a temple somewhere. Yes, that would be an idol if inside that statue was the belief that this is where safety came from, that this is where our trust came from, that this is where fertility came from and so on. But anything nowadays can be an idol because it's anything in your life other than God that you have trust in. It could be your 401k. It could be your, your, uh, the, the boss that, that uh, you serve in such a way that they hold every, all the cards to your future. It's wherever you find your security. It could be in your spouse. An idol is anything that replaces God and the role that he is supposed to play at the center of your life. But if instead you were trying to find an icon, or a mental picture to represent a reality that you can't see, biblically, that's a symbol. And it's different, and it's actually quite beautiful. It's a lot like the altar that Paul found, which was an idol by itself until he came and made it a symbol of the unknown God they don't know. Now allow me, within this series, to to walk us through this idea that we are going to be talking about icons only as symbols and their iconography and not icons as idols. So allow me to show you why this is an important thing to understand and how it can bless your life immediately today and and I think furthermore as you apply some of this to your own story. If I was to sit with any believer in this room right now and I was to ask you to describe God, you would use words like powerful, powerful, Merciful, loving, kind, generous, helpful, protective, uh, all-knowing. You would use all sorts of descriptive words and characteristics because that's how we describe things in the West. But Scripture was written through the Holy Spirit by people in the East, and so different language is often used to describe God. Like in Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Notice the symbols. He's my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He is a shield. He is the horn of salvation, my stronghold. Over and over and over in scripture, you will watch people using icons to describe a God who was revealing glimpses of himself to other people. And those icons or symbols teach people who God is and how he wants to interact with them. Jesus himself does this, describing himself in this symbolic, metaphoric way. Matthew 23, 37, he's standing over Jerusalem, grieving that they won't repent, that they won't come to him for redemption. And this is what he says, "'O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, "'the city that kills the prophets "'and stones those who are sent to it, "'how often would I have gathered your children together, "'listen to the symbol, "'as a hen who gathers her brood under her wings.'" and you were not willing. The West sees the world in literal forensic fact, but so many in the rest of the world do not. They see the world in symbols like this. And this is why the church in the West has lost much of its ability to evangelize and to share the gospel of the good news. It's not only that, that maybe we don't take the gospel as serious in our own story, It's that we don't know how to communicate with other people who can't relate to the way we describe God. Because when you describe God as a gentle, compassionate father to someone who had a father who was abusive and borderline sadistic, they can't relate to that and probably aren't going to follow you to church. But when you describe God as a fortress, where you describe God as a refuge... When you describe God as as a calm space within the storm of turmoil that is this world, it doesn't matter the other person's experience. They can see that symbol and they can relate to that space. The church needs to remember its love for art and pictures. It needs to remember that this was given to us and was an example, even in the story with Paul, redeeming this altar clearly for pagan worship. We have instead drew lines and said, your lifestyle doesn't fit. The way you see that doesn't work. You need to clean up, spiritually shower up, come to church, learn the song so you're not embarrassed, and then make sure and not open your mouth unless you have something that, you know, is in agreement with all the rest of us. If we don't learn to do this better, then we will continue to struggle to preach the gospel to a world that doesn't understand our language. You may have heard the story Um, of the uh, missionaries that went to New Guinea. They went to New Guinea and they preached the gospel and they were good at it. They were trained. And yet it just wouldn't take. Over and over and over, they kept trying different presentations, different presentations, until finally somebody was able to have a conversation with one of the elders of the village. And he came back to the rest of the missionaries and he goes, I think I figured out what's wrong. What's wrong? And they said, Well, tell us, we've been here for months trying to preach this and they're just not getting it. And he goes, Well, we keep teaching them the story that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And they're like, Yeah, he is. And they he goes, but they don't know what a lamb is. They have no idea what you're talking about. There's no lambs in New Guinea. So they started putting their, their heads together and like, well, what else, what else is there? Well, there is an animal that's very important to them, an animal their culture is very much based on that sustains them, that they protect, that they keep, that they love, that they understand. But it's, it's a pig. And so guess what they did? They preached the gospel with Jesus is the sacrificial pig of God. And suddenly everybody understood what it meant because they were able to speak in symbols that related. How, now is that hard for us? Yeah. Yeah, cause lambs are like gentle and soft and you can like, oh, look at it. And pigs are like dirty and make noise and they're, that's not very Jesus-like. And so we avoid speaking to people who grew up in a culture understanding the importance of pigs. And we instead just invite people and try to brainwash them into becoming people who understand lamb only. This is not the way of the gospel. It is above and beyond all of that. The church of the past was great at this. The church of the past would use their iconography to display the gospel in all kinds of different ways. And they would go to extremes. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these old churches that have this sort of iconography all over, just showing Jesus and his radiance, showing Mary, showing lambs, showing all these beautiful symbols. But if you ever walk in past these churches, you know the other thing you'll see on the outside are the gargoyles on the corners of the doors as you walk in. See, gargoyles were put there to remind people who were coming into church of what's out in the world. And that word gargoyle comes because they were, ter- they were actually made into gutters and water would flow out of their mouths in sort of this violent, oppressive way. And that gargling gargoyle uh, thing was created so that people could move out of the world and the oppression and the, and the chokiness of it and into a place full of other symbols that said, here's where light lives, here's where love lives, here's where peace lives. The church used to do this stuff, I mean, at an extreme level. And it worked. It worked. And then we decided to capitalize on it and hallmark it and own it and make it our own. And that's when iconography fell out of fashion. But we forgot that so much of what we still celebrate today came from this. Consider Easter and Easter eggs. I don't know if you've ever known this, but many scholars believe that Easter had its or early origins as an Anglo-Saxon pagan festival that celebrated the goddess Astar. The celebration was called Astar, E-A-S-T-R-E. And it was a celebration of the coming of spring and how life would resurrect out of winter. According to a professor at the University of Nebraska, some Christian missionaries saw this and they hoped that celebrating Christian holy days close to the the holidays of other pagan beliefs would help people to understand them better and so they begin to incorporate some of the existing pagan symbols like eggs and the name aster Apparently, eggs were eaten at the festival and also possibly buried in the ground to encourage fertility. Easter eggs were then used by Christians to symbolize parts of the Easter story and Easter eggs represented the empty tomb from which Jesus was resurrected. It wasn't our holiday. It was something that existed that some people said, I think this is important to them. I wonder if we can use it to explain a God they don't know. And it doesn 't just work that way; it works in reverse as well, like valentine 's Day, a day that, that, that is just all about cards and, and kind of romantic love. The entire thing started off with a priest who was marrying people uh, against a governor who told them that uh, as Christians they couldn 't be married, Saint Valentine, and that emperor was Claudius and he decided that love mattered and that Christians deserved to marry each other. And so he would marry men and women to keep them from being conscripted into the pagan army. And to remind them of the love, he would cut parchment of hearts and give it to them until the emperor caught him and martyred him. And Christians said, we're not gonna forget him and what love means. And so St. Valentine's Day was started. But throughout the years, even that holiday that, that, was, that belonged to us has been completely taken over to be something that means something very different. How about a cross? How many people right now have a cross somewhere on their body? It's tattooed on you or you have a necklace like I do. How many people, raise your hand. Yeah, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, uh, crosses weren't used for the first 200 years after Jesus was uh, crucified. Uh, Fish, a fish symbol was. As a matter of fact, uh, (laughs) I hope this doesn't wreck the cross for some of you. But... uh, The cross would have been offensive in the first 200 years. It would have been like walking around wearing an electric chair around my neck. Until the church saw it as a symbol. And then the church went after it. And then the church redeemed it. And the church redeemed it so much that once it became the symbol of the Roman Catholic Church, that's when Rome stopped using crucifixion as capital punishment. We redeemed a torture device. For our God. Please tell me, just, just tell me, what in this culture, if the cross of Christ, a torture device, a cruel, evil invention meant to p- uh, prolong the suffering of people, if that could be redeemed so that Christians are like, I'm a Christian, I'm going to go buy a torture device and hang it around my neck so everybody knows. <laughs> if that can be redeemed, what can't? This is what the church used to do all the time. See, part of the goal of the series is to create a new evangelistic paradigm. It's to create more and more icons in our culture that can be redeemed. Ones in which, instead of finding things to condemn, we can find things to engage with. We can find conversations. We can find spaces we never could before because we were asking for new eyes to see, as scripture says. Now, this doesn't mean we engage with everything. It doesn't mean that we just have no moral compass whatsoever. But it's important to take some time and evaluate what God has given us for his good news to be shared and in an even more authentic, loving, and giving way. It's important, and I think we need to do it. And so every single week, we're going to look at a different icon. And we're going to talk about it. And yes, I'm waiting for you to see that Santa Claus is up there. I know, I know. Uh, No, I won't tell you which week it is. And so you're just going to have to come in on faith (laughs) that God will have you here when he wants you here. Here's my hope. My hope is that through refreshing the ways we see and talk about God, we will be able to hold a new and fresh space with each other and our savior this holy day season. And so we will forever be another symbol in scripture, the hands and the feet of Christ to a world that so desperately wants to be walked around with and held. If we can do that, then we'll let God do what he wants to do with the rest of it. But I think for a lot of us, this is gonna be a really important reset and a really important way to ask the question, who, where are my idols and who am I reaching with this message? For those of you who are just uh, here for the journey and you're, you're spiritually curious and you're checking it out, keep coming. I believe in a Holy Spirit that can meet you and will meet you right where you are and you will know it because he is alive and well, and he loves you more than you could ever, ever imagine. And by the way, he believes in you even if you don't believe in him, so he'll take care of that. Yeah. I think it's gonna be a special season. I'm excited about it, and I hope you join me, with, join me for it. Amen? Amen? Would you stand? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, yeah, for every person here today, for whoever's watching. Thank you that... Uh, that I feel you whispering into the hearts of many who are here that there's something in this for them. May there be a freedom experienced in this series from idol worship, from focusing on anything other than you for our security and uh, faith and assurance. May there be a, maybe some church hurt healing inside this series with some people that, that, that have some experience with it, who understand what it means to see others outside the context of just a Sunday morning service. I thank you, Lord, for the the mix of journeys that you've brought here today. I pray that you would be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks all for coming. We'll see you soon.